All right, well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Why don't you go ahead and grab a Bible and open up to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. If you've been with us, you know that we are walking straight through this New Testament letter that we call Colossians. So Colossians chapter 1, and I hope you're on this journey with us in different ways. Uh, Obviously, we're preaching through Colossians at both campuses on Sunday morning. Our life groups are discussing through the book of Colossians, and then we've given you a reading plan where you can really dive down into this book and make it part of your daily time with the Lord. You can find all that online, or we have some paper copies out there that you can follow along as we explore this great New Testament book of Colossians together. So this morning, um, I, was, I was thinking of something that my seminary professor told me when I was in seminary way back when, and uh, he made a statement. It was one of those statements in preaching class that I'll never forget. He said, uh, he said young man, and of course that was many years ago, he said, young man, uh, remember when you're preaching, one of the most important, or really the most important thing you'll say all day is when you read the Word of God. So I'm just going to read the verses for us and to us that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 24 through 29. And just as a reminder, remember, when we read this, we're reading a letter. It's a divinely inspired letter. God inspired it through the Apostle Paul. Paul's there in prison in Rome. He's received a guest named Epaphras, who's traveled thousands of miles, literally, from the city of Colossae, where a new church is growing. And Epaphras has come to Paul and said, Paul, there's some serious things going on at this church, and you need to do something, so to speak. And he said, man, the church is doing great in many ways, they're thriving in many ways, many great things are happening, but these dudes, these guys, these false teachers have come in, and they begin teaching stuff that's not true. They're distorting who Jesus is. They're saying he's not really the son of God. They're distorting the gospel and all these things we have to do to be right with God and what it means to live the life. And and Paul was just alarmed and disturbed. and So he sits down and he writes this letter. Then he gives the letter to Epaphras. Epaphras travels back with it thousands of miles. And then when he gets there, the church gathers. And Epaphras would stand and read or whoever would stand and read that letter to the church. So I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm not going to be on the screen yet. I just want you to kind of listen as if this letter was written directly to you, which in many ways it is. We'll begin in verse 24. Paul writes and says, Now I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Of this church, I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and past generations, but now has been manifested to you as saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry among the Gentiles. And I'm just going to tell you, we're going to camp out in verse 27 in just a few minutes. So get ready. What is this mystery of the glory? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Paul says, we proclaim him, Christ. We admonish every man. We teach every man and woman with all wisdom so that we can present every man, every person complete or mature in Christ. For this purpose, Paul says, I labor. Paul's giving a little personal testimony here and saying the ministry that God's called me to, it ain't easy, Colossians. 
I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. So we're going to get to that passage in just a second. But I want to to kind of share with you the direction we're going this morning. And I would call it maybe a personal conviction or a burden for myself and my family and my church family. Is There's a, a reality that I think as believers in Christ, as truly born again believers in Christ... We settle. We settle. Which means we settle for much, much, much less than is what is ours in Christ. And by nature of having Christ in us, being bought by Christ, redeemed by Christ, knowing Christ, having this relationship with God through Christ, we settle for so much less. And it's what is ours in Christ, what belongs to us in Christ, if you will. In the last few weeks, I've somehow stumbled onto C.S. Lewis, some of his writings. And many of you know who C.S. Lewis is, Narnia Chronicles, all that. He wrote a lot of that, but he wrote a lot of other things. And he wrote a little book called The Weight, Weight of Glory. The Heaviness of Glory. And the whole theme of that little book is this. We settle as believers. So much more that God has for us in Christ that we either get distracted or we settle or we chase things that really don't matter. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I'll quickly read just a quote. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with things of the world, with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. He says, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by offer of a holiday at the sea. Final word, he says, we are far too easily pleased. We settle. So the burden for me this morning is one of a dad, it's one of a husband, it's one of a pastor. As I read these words, The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers who had settled for much, 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 much less than what was theirs in Christ. One of the reasons they were settling is because they had become deluded, the Bible says, and distracted because these false teachers had come in there and started to dangle out all these different pursuits. That He said, oh, pursue this and pursue that, pursue this other thing, and and then you'll be complete, and then you'll have joy, and then you'll have satisfaction. All of those were distractions from Christ. And the person of Jesus. So if you've been reading through Colossians with us, you have to to get the sense that Paul is desiring so much more for these Colossian believers and those that knew Christ. He continually raises, raises their notion of who Jesus is. And continually reminds them of all that is ours in Christ so that we'll know... As Paul says in chapter 2, we are complete in Christ. So that we won't settle as believers. So Paul writes here, and he writes with all those concern. He writes with all that concern of a pastor. He writes with all that concern as a, an apostle. He almost has language almost of a dad at times. He wants so much more for them. So I'm going to begin, and we're just going to kind of walk through these verses. I'm going to back up in verse 24 where we read. I'm going to read through a few of these verses, kind of break them apart, give you a little bit of application. And then we're going to land in verse 27 where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So 
Paul writes here, and again, sends this by Epaphras to the church. And he says this in verse 24, really strange language if you don't know the context. He says, now I rejoice. What are you excited about, Paul? What causes you to rejoice? Well, in my sufferings. Now, come on, I, I know you had to be reading through that. You got to say, okay, who, who rejoices in suffering? What are you talking about, Paul? Well, the sufferings he's talking about in particular at this present time as he writes this letter, he's in prison in Rome. He's in prison as a result of the gospel of Christ. And he says, I'm, I'm actually rejoicing in my current sufferings. And he says this, for your sake. Paul realizes by this divine perspective that God's given him that the suffering he's currently enduring is something to rejoice in because the church, the other believers, other people are benefiting from it. Paul understands, and this is a huge reality for you and me, that any suffering that is endured by a believer... For the sake of Christ, because of the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about suffering that we encounter because we're stupid or we do something dumb. But because of the name of Christ. Any suffering that a believer endures is never without purpose. Ever. Paul goes on and he says, I'm suffering in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if you've read, read this and you've been reading along with us in your time, you come to passages like suffering. I do, and I'll confess this. Sometimes we just read right over them, and here's why. Listen. 2016, in America, for the past 100 years or so, in God-blessed America, most believers here have no idea of what it means to really suffer for Christ. No idea. I think it is my responsibility before God and the responsibility of your elders and your pastors that love you to prepare you with the whole counsel of God because times may be changing greatly. Now listen, that's not hellfire and brimstone of the world's coming to an end. God is in sovereign control. And the idea that the believers of God can live without persecution for the name of knowing Christ is really a strange thing looking back over 1900 years of church history. For the most part, the church has suffered. Now listen, and in the suffering of the church, the gospel advances despite, and I would even say, through the suffering of the people of God. And Paul gets that. He says, listen. Somehow I understand that the suffering of God's people is not just plan B. God uses the suffering of God's people to advance the gospel and to mature and grow the saints and to, to grow the church. Paul says, so if I've got to be here in prison and I've got to suffer and you benefit from it and Christ is glorified, hey, I could rejoice in that. For many of us, that's a language we can't even relate to. Yet. Rejoice in suffering. Then he says something really crazy. I mean, you've got to stop here and go, okay, Paul, what are you saying? Christ is lacking in something? He says, I, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul, Jesus lacked in nothing. Right. The atonement was fully bought in Christ. Christ did everything for me to be right with God and walk with God on the cross and resurrection. Right? Yes. 
What is lacking specifically here was the building up and the growth and the maturing of the church, the body of Christ. It was in progress then, it's in progress now, and Paul said, I'm continuing with the very sufferings of Christ in my body for the good of the church and the growth of the church. God always uses the suffering of his people. It is never without purpose. And I'll say this. It's usually not even about you. It's funny how God works that way, isn't it? So Paul goes on and then he, then he tells the Colossians a little bit about himself, a little bit about his ministry. Remember, most of the Colossians had never even met Paul. The church was started there through Epaphras and others, we believe, that came across under the ministry of Paul, the influence of Paul. So Paul says, listen, of this church, I was made a minister. And I love that language. Theologians would say it's a theological passive, which means God did something. God called Paul out from the direction he was going. He interrupted Paul's life, he says, and God made me a minister. God called me to this ministry. God bestowed on me this stewardship for your benefit. Paul says, listen, I was going along my life doing my thing. By the way, if you know the story in Acts 8 and 9, and you can go back and read that, Paul was not searching for God. Paul was not leading a Sunday school class. Paul was persecuting the church of God. His life was this. I'm going to kill all the believers, all those men and women that say they know Christ, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to annihilate the church. And if you know that background, you read this and you go, Paul, a minister? What? That's crazy. God invaded Paul's life. Acts 22, Paul tells about it. I'll read this to you really quick. He says, I mean, you, you know the story. Paul's traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus. And he's not going to visit churches so they can sing hymns together. He's going to kill the believers. To the city of Damascus that's in the news today. Paul was a 2,000 years ago member of ISIS, if you will. God invades his life. Paul says in Acts 22, he says, And of those who were with me saw the light. He was knocked off his horse by this light. He said, did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking with me. Christ stepped into his life. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? <laughs> He was knocked off his horse. A voice is speaking from him. Jesus says, it's me, the one you've been persecuting. And watch, God invaded and transformed Paul's life right there. The grace of God. And Paul's response was huge. He says, well, Lord, I don't know if you know, but I'm a pretty successful Pharisee. And I'd really like to pursue those things that I've been you know, chasing there. And I, I really have other plans for my life. And I've got a big old 401k, Lord. And don't you know I'm a successful guy? Let me tell you what you don't hear a hint of from the Apostle Paul. Anything other than, yes, Lord. Now listen. You say... Paul's pretty radical, isn't he? Nope. Paul is a Christian. A Christian. He says, this ministry that has been given to me was assigned to me by God. God bestowed this on me for your benefit, he says, so that I might fully carry out the word of God. Paul saw it as a stewardship. Paul saw it for others. Here's a truth for you. All believers have a ministry, gifts, talents, abilities, resources given 
by God for the good of others of which you will give an account. Paul saw it that way. Lord, you've entrusted me, me with this ministry. It's not for me. It's not about me. It's ultimately for your glory. It's to grow the church and make you known to the end of the earth. Yes, Lord. Credible testimony of the Apostle Paul. So he goes on, he says, and just, just to get real specific for you, he says, here's, the, here's some specific things about the ministry God's assigned to me. Verse 26, Paul says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. Paul, what are you talking about? Mystery, I mean, because in that day, remember, in the Colossian church, there was all these secret mystery religions and all this truth that was revealed only to a select few. And it seems like Paul's talking about that, but that's not what Paul's talking about at all. The word mystery here, you have to understand this, means this. A divine truth or a divine reality hidden but now made known. It had been unknown or it had been unclear for years and years and years. Paul said, listen... Thousands of years of, of, of the Old Testament saints, if you will, grew up without the awareness, without the experiential understanding of what I'm getting ready to share with you. It was this mystery of God that was hidden in the past, and now I'm making it known. And it wasn't just entrusted to Paul, it was entrusted to every New Testament believer. Paul, what is that mystery? What is this thing that you didn't make known, but now you're making clear? Tell me this, I want to know what this is. So he goes on, verse 27, now hang with me. Paul says this. It says, To this mystery, verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry, uh, mystery. Stop right there. He says, Whatever this mystery is, it is immense in riches of glory. I, mean, I can't even articulate how much Paul's just oozing here of words like riches of glory. There's something that was unknown in the past. I'm making it known to you, and it is just so full of glory. It's of immense truth. And Paul says, God has assigned me to take the gospel and this implication of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. To go outside of Israel, that's why Paul traveled in Europe, why traveled in Asia Manor. God had assigned it to him. That was Paul's mission. He says, here it is, ready? God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. Here it is, ready? Which is Christ in you. Christ in you. In you, the hope of glory. Paul says, listen, you have to understand. And i got to stop right here and just give you a personal testimony really quick. i got to tell you something. Personally, in the last five, six, seven years of my personal walk with Jesus, not as Pastor Mike, as Mike follower of Christ. God, God's used a lot to grow me and shape me. i got to tell you, this truth right here has been one of, if not the most formative, shaping realities in my life. Paul says, Christ in you. He says, you got to get it. He says, I'm not preaching morality. He says, I'm not preaching try harder, do more, be good. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach you to be bad. I don't mean that. The teaching of the Bible is transformation. Christ in you. He says, I'm not teaching self-improvement. 
He says, I'm not teaching willpower. You understand, the message of the gospel and the message of Christ is not a willpower system where it's me. Try harder, do more. It's Christ in me. Changes everything. Paul says it's not Christ plus the rules. It's not Christ plus try harder. It's not self-improvement. It's not making better resolutions. It is a recognition by faith. Wait a minute. A transformation because Christ died because he rose again. God saved me. Christ invaded me. Jesus Christ lives in me. In me. That changes everything. The Old Testament believers didn't understand this reality. That's why Paul says it's now a reality that's being made known now that Christ, God, is in you. I mean, track some of the Old Testament believers. Moses, a guy that we would look at and just say, man, what a guy, what a leader, what a follower of God. Moses, the Bible said, Exodus 33, traveled to the tent of meeting and would go inside the tent. God would come and habitate with him. And God would come, this light would come down, the manifest glory of God. But Moses had no understanding or idea of Christ in me. Moses. Psalm 27, David says, My desire is to go into the temple and behold the glory of the Lord and to bask in your presence. David. The mystery was not known to David. Wait a minute. It's not you going to a building. It's not a set of rules. It is God in me. Paul says, you've got to get this. I'm telling you, church, this changes Everything, because when we take this and we substitute it with something else, it most often is substituted with dead religion. And the world is dying for truth, not dead religion. The truth is, the message you hold out is a God that came, took on flesh, died, rose again, and now God saves us when we place faith in Him and He comes to inhabit us, not make us better, not try to improve us, transform us from the inside out. Paul says, Christ in you. Christ in you. Now let me, in the short time I have, try to even break this down a little bit for us. The, the immense implications of this. Paul says, Christ in you. He says, Christ. Paul has spent a whole chapter, and he spends a whole book here, reminding the Colossians of who Christ is. I mean, we just read it a few weeks ago. Christ, remember, he's the image of the invisible God, verse 15. He is the firstborn, superior one of all creation. By him all things were created, both in heavens and on their visible and invisible. He created it all. Verse 17 says he's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. On and on and on. All these accolades of who Christ is. 2, 9, Paul says, in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. <laughs> Jesus does not have a little spark of God. He is fully God, creator, divine, omnipotent, all-powerful, unlimited God in the flesh. And Paul says, and oh, by the way, he now lives in you. <laughs> How, how can that, I mean, I have a little trouble there. How can that, how can that be? And I, I can't even begin to get in all the logistics and technicalities of it. There's a lot there, but say so how, I mean, I, Jesus was a man. He walked on earth. He had a body. So how could he inhabit all of his people? Well, Jesus explained that a little bit in the Gospels, and I'll quickly remind you. 
He's talking to his disciples before his resurrection, before his cross. He says, guys, I'm getting ready to go away. I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. I'm not going to continue to walk on the earth in this body like I am now. I'm going away. But all the way, oh, by the way, guys, listen, it's better for you. And you got to think Peter goes, come on, Jesus. How could that be better, man? We got you. Jesus says, no, it's better. Because when I go away, he says, John 15, or yeah, John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, the Holy Spirit, because he abides, watch, with you. And Jesus says, and will be in you. He says, right now the spirit of God is walking among you through me. But there's a day coming when the very spirit of Christ will dwell in you. Changes everything. The word in Pastor Mike, are you going to preach a message about two letters? Yep, hang on, ready? In, I-N. You know what that means? Massive. The word in is a preposition. How about that? That's gospel truth right there. A preposition. You know what a preposition does? Nope, I have no idea, Pastor Mike. You got to help me. I, I don't know. A preposition reveals how objects relate to one another. For example, I am standing beside this podium. Beside, it's my relationship. I'm standing on this stage. It's my relationship with this stage. I'm standing under these lights. Preposition. In here, in the original language, is massive because it's a preposition of relationship. And God says, I've got to communicate to you the depth of relationship that you have with me by nature of the gospel in Christ. The nature of the relationship is this. Christ is in you. And you are in Christ. His spirit indwells you. It is a word that is just oozing with meaning of the depth of of the relationship you have with God through Christ in you. I, I, can't even, I can't even describe it all. I try to come up with illustrations, and my illustrations are so weak to try to, try, try to describe this relationship of being in and how that changes everything. Let me give you a silly illustration. And I'm telling you, it's a silly one. It's the best one I come up with. Ready? I'm a terrible basketball player. Awful. Anybody ever played with me? You stay on the sidelines, you're probably going to get a knee hurt or something because I'm just all over the court. I'm a mess. A few amens. That was my father-in-law, I think. Anyway. LeBron James is a pretty good basketball player. You say, I have no idea who LeBron James is. Take my word for it. He's a good basketball player. Listen, I could be out on the court playing basketball. LeBron James could come and sit on the sidelines. He could cheer for me. He could coach me. He could do all that. And guess what I would be? A well-coached, terrible basketball player. Wouldn't change. But if there was some way that LeBron James, the great basketball player, could come and live inside of me, and it could be him on the court and not me, and it's just, it's my face, it's me, it's all that, but it's really him doing it through me, it changed everything. That is a very weak illustration. Listen, Jesus is not standing on the sidelines coaching you. He's not in heaven saying, come on, Mike, you got to get here, do your hardest, try your best, I'm waiting for you. He says, no, I live in you. In you. It changes everything. 
word you here is plural. That is, he incorporates us, he indwells in us corporately, but the word's also singular in 1 Corinthians 3 to describe he, just, he, he indwells in us individually. As believers, he's in me. Now, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? They're just immense for you and me. I'm going to give you four vital truths that flow right out of this quickly. Because the understanding that the, the core of the Bible made possible by the gospel of Christ is Christ in me. It's a game changer for us. I'll give you four implications really quick. Number one. Vital truth number one is this. Because of my union, and the word union is just another way to say it. Christ in me, I'm in Christ, I'm in union with Christ through the Spirit of God. Because of my union with Christ, His death is my death. What? The cross of Christ is not just an event that happens vicariously to us 2,000 years ago that we just observe and go, wow, in that knee and shed a tear and say, look at that gruesome body on the cross. Paul says, Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, done away with, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Listen, if you want something to shout about today and you're real honest about the struggles in your life, we are all struggling with sin. Child of God, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Why? Christ in us. And the death that he died, I died with him, and I died to the mastery of sin. Sin is no longer my master. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Time out. You say, okay, I get that. (laughs) Can anybody else hear water? (laughs) Thanks. Okay, good. I thought I was going crazy for a second. Okay. Uh, so mastery of sin, here's the point. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Mike. If we were all real honest, I, I, I struggle with sin. I know everybody has to go to the bathroom now. I get it. Just wait. I'll be done in a minute. <laughs> you say, Pastor Mike, I read that. I'm not, I still struggle with sin. So do I. But here's a reality. It's not my master. I have the power to say no. I have the power to turn from sin. I'm still a human being in this flesh. One day this flesh is going to be redeemed, praise God. And all my old propensities and all my old habits and all my old ways of thinking that I wrestle with are gone. Because you still have sinful habits and sinful ways of thinking. You have the residue of sin in you prior. But listen, you've got to understand, you're no longer a slave to it. Which means when the enemy tells you, you can't beat this, it's mastery over you, you can't fight this pornography, sir. You need to say, yes, I can in Christ because the power of the resurrected Christ is in me. It is no longer my master. It is not my master. Any type of counseling over addictions without an understanding of this will fall short. Sin is not your master. Christ is in Second truth, vital truth, because of my union with Christ, his life is my life. 
Listen to what Paul said, Romans 6. We have been buried, therefore, by baptism into death. Baptism symbolizes this reality in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in you. Christianity is not a self-improvement plan. Christianity is an overhaul. Christ is in you, and it's his life in you. His life. His life. His resurrection power in you. By faith, his resurrection became my resurrection from the dead. Baptism symbolizes that. We baptized two this morning in the early service. It's a picture of dead to sin, live to Christ. Christ is in you. Let me give you some examples. If Christ is really in us, listen. Don't settle Don't settle for your best life now or merely a self-improvement. You don't need self-improvement. You have the living Christ within you. You have the capacity. I have the capacity in Christ to live radically different and counter-cultural lives today. Because Jesus is in me. Give you some examples. Christians, more than all people, have the capacity to demonstrate supernatural love. You do! You see, you don't understand, Pastor Mike, how can I love this person? And I'm not talking about cheap sentimentality. I'm talking about laying down your life for another person. How can you do that? Because it's not the best love I can give. It is literally the supernatural love of Christ in me. You have that capacity in Christ. Christ in you. Let me give you another one. Very personal, very dear to me. There's a couple verses in the Bible. A lot of them actually give me a trouble, give me a hard time. Here's one of them. Ephesians 5 says this. Husbands, I'm one of them. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Hey, guys, does anybody else have trouble with that? Not because of my wife, because of me. God, I want to do that. I want to live that way. I can't live that way in Christ. Can I? You sure can. Listen, let me tell you something, sir. Because of Jesus Christ in you, you have the capacity to model a marriage that you can't imagine. And it is not your self-improvement. It is not your best efforts. It is Christ in you that enables you to love that woman faithfully to the end. Christians have that capacity because of Christ. Let me give you another one. There's another place in the Bible that says this. Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Just as. (laughs) Yes, there's a drain in the baptistry now draining. That's okay. I just have to acknowledge that. We'll change that next time. Listen, you have the capacity to grant supernatural forgiveness that nobody else on the planet apart from Christ can grant. Only you, because Christ is in you. You say, you don't know what that person's done to me. You don't know what I've experienced, and I don't. You're exactly right. But Christ in you gives you the capacity for supernatural forgiveness. To heal relationships and marriages, Christ in you. I mean, there's just so many more. Let me give you a third one really quick. And this... I could talk about this one all day. I'm going to be very quick with this one. This is an implication. Ready? Vital truth number three. Because of my union with Christ, my body is the dwelling place of God on earth. 
that ought to blow you away. See, the Colossian, part of the lie that was floating around the church at Colossae was that material things, even like our body, are, are only evil, so therefore it really doesn't even matter what you do with your body. That's not the biblical understanding of our bodies. Our bodies have value, and here's why, yes, we're going to get new bodies, but even our bodies now have value, and what we do with them matters because our bodies are the dwelling place of God. And Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 6 very quickly. He says this, 6.17, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Okay, Christ in me, me in Christ. Then he skipped, I'm going to skip a verse, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, so that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. What you do with your body matters because your body is a temple of God. To teach anything other than that, something like abstinence or something like purity, apart from a recognition that your body's a temple of the Spirit of God, is just moralism and it'll never work. Christ in me, in your physical body. That's why Paul says, verse 18, from 1 Corinthians, here's an application of this reality. He says, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. Run from it. Run from it. Why? Child of God, your body is a temple of God. Your body is the tool by which you can honor God, glorify God, present yourself to God, or it's the tool that you can do heinous sin. But Christ is in you. That changes everything. Parents, don't just tell your kids, do this, don't do this. Tell your believing kids, your body is a temple of God, and it matters what you do with your body. Truth number four, really quick, and we'll be finished. Because of my union with Christ, there is future glory. Future glory. Remember, the word glory in the biblical understanding is something weighty, something that has value, something that's showing forth with great value. He says there's glory now, but there's future glory that you can't even imagine. He says this, verse 27, To whom God made will or made known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Something future. There's glory now, but there's infinite greater glory in the future. The word hope in the Bible never means a maybe. It never means, well, I hope that might work out. That's never the idea. The word hope in the Bible always means absolute certainty, yet unrevealed. It's not realized yet, but it's going to be. There's an absolute certainty. Christ in you now, glory. Christ in you, future, to take you home to glory forever and ever and ever. A glory you can't even imagine. Don't settle. Don't settle. Whew, Pastor Mike, you're getting kind of loud about that. You're kind of into that. <laughs> Listen, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. See, what do I do with this? How, how do I apply this? Where do I go from here? And let me just give you four quick words, really quick, quick statements. How do I respond to this? Help, this is so incredible truth. As a church, we hold out something we call our core practices or things we pursue as followers of Christ, five of them. I'm going to condense them down to four for our purposes here. And the reason is we want to help you grow as a believer. We want want to grow in our relationship with Christ. So in light of the fact that Christ is in me, what do I do? Life application number one, abide in Christ. 
Jesus said it this way, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, I'm in you, I'm with you. Rest in the position that you have in Christ. You are my child. I indwell you and pursue me in this relationship. Come to know me in a more intimate way. Grow in your understanding. Get the word of God. Fill your life with the word of God. The reason we hold out a Colossians reading plan to you is not so we can check it out and go, well, we read Colossians. Because the living word of God is transformational in your life as you read and behold Christ and you are transformed from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory and you are changed. You're in a relationship with Christ. Abide, pursue the person of Christ. Secondly, my second life application is this very quickly. We gather and connect with one another as a church. Why do we do that? See, this whole idea of Christ in us, it affects this gathering. It affects your life group. It affects gathering as believers because, you got to get this, if Christ is in me, Christ ministers to His people through His people. He... he He's designed you to be able to serve and minister to others because He's indwelling you. So when we gather like this, or when we gather in groups, and we challenge and encourage and spur one another on, it's not just me doing it, it's Christ doing it through me and in me. That's why the church comes together. Because Christ is in us. Listen, i got to tell you something. This is an incredible reality to me. If Christ is in me as a child of God, let me ask you a question. Where is the most holy place you will go all day? Where's the most sacred place I'll enter all day long? You say, well, it must be the church building. I mean, it's, it's a holy place, right? That's not the teaching in the New Testament. You ready for this? The most holy space you will inhabit all day, watch this, is the presence of another believer. Because God is in them. That's why the Bible makes so much a big deal about loving one another and serving one another. It's not my service. It's His service through me. It's not a recognition that you're great and wonderful. It's that God is in you. It changes everything. Last two, really quick. We serve one another. Life application. It's not me serving. It's Christ serving through me. And then finally and fifthly, we're done. Life application is this. We go. We go make disciples. I'm going to ask the team to come on up and just begin to play. But I want you to get this. The service is not over. We're going to just end in a closing prayer in just a minute. Hang with me. Jesus said this, go. Make disciples. And we are a church that is designed and structured to be unashamedly a sending church. Meaning. What is the evangelistic strategy of our church? You. Me. Why? Because we are convinced that with Christ in me, this is massive. Christ in you. When you moved into your neighborhood, God moved in. God moved in. When you walk in your classroom, Jesus walks in. When you sit across that table with a cup of coffee sharing the gospel with that friend, it's Jesus doing it through you. 
That changes everything. So we say, don't go out and try harder and do better. No way. Christ in me. Paul ends the passage with that. He says, I labor and I strive, but not according to my own power. His power that mightily works within me. So we go. We go recognizing, hey, Christ in me. I have boldness. I have power. It's not mine. Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is a game changer. Listen, don't settle. Don't settle. Don't pursue what the world dangles out there. Don't pursue even what weak biblical teachers hold out there. Here's the glory. Christ in you. Pursue Christ with all your life. Press into community, the body of Christ. Christ in the body. And give your life to a mission that's not your best efforts. It is Jesus Christ in you to the end of the world. Don't settle. Would you bow your head? I don't want this just to be a perfunctory way we end the service. I, I'm going to pray over you in just a minute. We're not going to stand and sing. We're, we're short on time because I talked way too long. But I want you to do business with God right there where you're seated. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but here's, here's some realities. One, you may be a follower. You may have known Christ for a week. You may have known Christ for a year or 20 years. Maybe this morning you were poignantly reminded of the incredible reality, Christ in me. Worship. Just worship Him right there. Just praise Him. God, thank you. This changes everything. My marriage, my job, my I'm the dwelling place of God. You may be here this morning and maybe you've been coming a few weeks. Maybe this is a new experience for you. Maybe you came with a friend. Somebody's been telling you about this whole idea of following Christ. Or maybe it's your first time or maybe you've been here 20 years. I don't know. But boy, you realize I'm a shell. Oh, I have all the external trappings. I wear the t-shirt. I, I can say the right Christian things. There's no power in my life. And maybe it's because Jesus Christ is not in you. Romans 8 says, He that does not have the Son does not have the life. Or the, He who has the Spirit of God has the life. That's 1 John. But the idea is if you don't have the Spirit of God living in you, Romans 8 says, you're none of His. You don't even belong to Him. So this morning, if that's you, I encourage you by faith right now in deep dependence upon Jesus Christ to call out to Him right there where you're seated. Lord, I need you. I'm not playing a game anymore. I have a form of godliness that's an empty shell. God, come and live inside of me. I give you my life. I know you died for me in my place. I want your resurrection power. And my answer to you, like Paul, is yes, Lord. Yes. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this truth that is absolutely eternity-altering. Christ in us. God, we love you and we stand in awe of this reality. And God, I pray it changes us. Lord, I plead with you for my brothers and sisters here this morning that we do not settle. 
We do not chase those empty pursuits that we think bring ultimate joy when Christ is in us, the hope of glory. I pray for any man or woman student here this morning that's that's playing a game. They're wearing the t-shirt, but they don't know you that this morning they would repent and believe and you would come to live within them by faith. We ask it for your glory, for your namesake. All God's people said together, amen.